a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up, and you have not let my enemies to rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul out of Sheol, and you have not kept and you have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may endure for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me and my arrogance and my prosperity, I said I would never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face from me, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is it in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that we are limited. So I bring this hour, the preacher and the people to you, and ask that you would have your way. I ask that, God, your word would be honored amongst us, that the preacher will preach without himself but with you, and that the hearers would hear and be invaded by your truth. And, God, I pray that you would be magnified and glorified even now, that we may know what it means to give thanks to you forever. Amen. Well, good morning, ARC. Amen, man. I didn't know how y'all so close. It's so intimidating. <laughs> um, but um, so I was, I was digging through this text, and um, I have to be candid with you. I struggled a little bit, um, not from an exegetical perspective, because I enjoy teaching God's word. I enjoy digging into God's word to have God's word dig into me. What I struggled with was the theory of giving thanks forever. I struggle with giving thanks in the moment. I don't know how you get to a point where you give thanks forever. You must have gone through some things. God must have shown you some things for you to declare, I will give thanks forever. So I started to ask the question, and the reason this troubled me was because for me, for most of my life, I struggled with contentment. Amen. Hallelujah. If you're in here, you, you may struggle with that. You may relate. You may not be able to relate. I struggle with contentment, so of course I struggle with giving thanks to God. Because if you're not content, what do you have to be thankful for? And so for me, to hear David say, I will give thanks forever, it was unbelievable for me. I didn't struggle with understanding the truth of the text. I struggled with believing the truth of the text. And so you might be here, and maybe you might not be able to relate. Maybe for you, you're a super-duper thankful Christian. All you do is thank God all the time. If that's you, do you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. But wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of giving thanks, we can all agree that we can learn to be more thankful. I never met a saint that tells me they've given too much thanks. No one's ever said, man, I thank God too much. I need to slow down. 
but we all can learn how to be more thankful. And so what I want to share with you this morning is what I learned. My experience may not be general. My experience may be universal. It may not be. But before you tune me out, I want to give you the principle that I pulled out of this text. And so if you're prone to giving, taking notes, this is where you take notes, and you write this down, and you keep that. You could tune, in, tune out for the rest of the sermon, amen, but you've gotten this much, amen? Here's what I learned. David makes this statement, I will give thanks forever. The reason you can make that statement is because of this. This is the point. The realization of God's constant faithfulness, despite our consistent faithlessness, results in continuous thanksgiving. Let me say that one more time. The realization or the recognition of God's faithfulness, his constant faithfulness, in the face of you and I's consistent unfaithfulness, results in continuous thanksgiving. This psalm is all about praise. It's all about praise. That's all it does. All about that praise, about that praise. No trouble. All about praise. It's all about praise. Look at verse 1. David says, I will extol you, O Lord, because you lifted me. Verse 4, I sing praises. He calls people to sing praises to the Lord, you godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise. This is what we call an inclusio. What this simply means is that the writer of this text wants you to get the point that it's all about praise and everything that I'm doing in this text is to tell you that you need to praise God. Simply said, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. David wants to get across to you that God is worthy of his thanks. So now we know that David is thanking God. We get it. We understand it. We, we can comprehend that every single part of this text is about, comprehend, is about thanking the Lord. But what is David thanking God for? You see, because an uninformed praise is an insincere praise. If your, if your praise is not informed by something beyond you, it will never stand the test of time. An uninformed praise is an insincere praise. If you're thanking me and you don't know what you're thanking me for, keep your thanks. David opens up and says, I will extol you. Look in verse 1. He says, I will extol you. I will raise you up. I will, de I, I will declare your goodness. This is an act of the will. This is not an emotional praise. This is not a circumstantial praise. This is a declaration that regardless of what's going on, externally, internally, my heart is to praise God. Man, I had to preach. And that's what I'm doing this morning. <laughs> David says, I will extol you. Now, this, get a little technical here, this is what we call imperfect aspect of the tense of praise. What David is saying here, he is it's in the imperfect tense, and what that simply means, there's three ways you can take this, right? One is, David is speaking of an action that is yet in progress. Make sense? That I'm showing you how I praise. I'm showing you how me and the Lord get down. Come on in and join me. David could also be talking about a habitual action. In other words, all I do is praise God all day long. This is how I do it. The third, though, which I think is what we see in this text, is a task or a praise that happened once and has ongoing and unfolding results. 
In other words, God did something great then, I will praise him then, and that praise from then carries me into the future. So that if God does nothing else for David, David will always thank God. Now, if that's good enough for David and God healing him temporarily, how much more for the Christian who God heals permanently? I mean, spiritual healing. I mean, the day when there's no more crying and no more sorrow, where your weeping, which was for a night, no longer appears. If David can praise him imperfectly then, how much more us? I will praise him. I will extol him. I will raise him high. Now, let's be honest. You can't raise God high. What you do is you declare his height in your life. David says, I will extol him. David gives us some words here to help us um, in understanding um, who and what he is extolling. Again, an uninformed praise is an insincere praise. So David gives us reasons why he praises and extols the Lord. Would you like to know? Well, you will, because I study for it, so I'm going to share it with you. Amen? There's seven reasons that I see in this text. Look at verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. David praises God for deliverance from disgrace. You didn't let them laugh over me, God. They will say, where is your God? This is more about me, but really more about you because I'm your anointed. David praises God for deliverance from disgrace. Look at verse 2. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. He praises God for deliverance from disease. He says, you healed me. Whatever the nature of this disease is, I don't know and I don't really care. But whatever it is, is that he knew that God was the source of his healing. Thirdly, David says, God, you delivered me from death. Look in verse 3. David says, oh, Lord, God, you brought my soul out of shield. And you kept me alive that I would not go into the pit. You kept me from death. Now, to be honest, David is not speaking here of resurrection, right? David is speaking of the fact that I was so far gone that I might as well be dead. David says, you delivered me from death. Verse 5, David says, you delivered me from discipline, righteous discipline. You delivered me, God. He says, for your anger is for a moment, but your favor is for a lifetime. And the weeping as a result of your anger only lasts for a night, but joy comes in. You delivered me from discipline, Lord, and I thank you. David says, Lord, you delivered me from desertion. You left me. You hid your face from me. Look in verse 6. He says, now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Verse 5, O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face from me, and I was dismayed. The Lord deserted him, or at least that was his experience. David says, you delivered me from that. Verse 11, David says, you delivered me from depression, Lord. It says here, it says, you turn for me my mourning into what? Dancing. And what else did you do, Lord? You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The Lord delivered him from depression. The Lord also delivered David from dumbness. And by dumbness, I don't mean intellectual dumbness. I mean the inability to articulate your pain. You ever been so hurt and so pained that you can't even speak? 
that people come to you and offer you advice and all you can do is hmm. The, the slaves, the black slaves understood this. They would hmm, hmm, hmm. Why? Because sometimes there are some moans and groans that you cannot utter. David says, you delivered me, Lord, from this deep depression that only could have been expressed even if you gave me breath to talk about it. God did that. God delivered him from all those things. It's interesting in the text here, look at verse 1. He says, you, he says, I will extol you. There's an object of David's stolen, and that person is the Lord. Now, in your English Bible, you have Lord, but it's important to understand that behind this is the word Yahweh, the very covenantal name of God. God declares himself to Moses, his nature and his name in Exodus chapter 3. He says, I am a yeh, a sher, a yeh, which means I is who I is. And because God speaks good English, we translate it, I am who I am. But I is who I is. I be who I be. I never change. I am the pre-existent prime mover of all things that causes everything that breathes to come into existence. David says, that God lifted me. God on high stooped so low to bring me up. I will extol him. That's what David is saying here. Nobody has to teach David to praise God. Because God has shown David what he is and who he is. God declares himself as the Asher, Ayer, Asher. David in verse 2 and 3 says, Oh Lord my God, I cried to you and you healed me. Oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol and you have kept me alive. God kept David alive. And I told you earlier, this is not resurrection. This is that I'm so at the brink of death that I might as well be dead. And you kept me from that. I didn't deserve it. I know I didn't deserve it. Because I see later on in the text in chapter 5 that there was an anger, a righteous anger from God. But you kept me. You pulled me out. You kept me from death. Some deaths are different. Death is not only physical, y'all. Some deaths are worse than physical. When your soul dies and you can't scream and you can't talk, no one understands you but God. Oh, I get where David is coming from. That's probably why I was afraid to get into the text for real. Because I understand what it's like when God's hand of punishment and discipline is on your soul. And when he lifts it, you will extol the Lord. David now moves from personal praise to public praise. David says, come here, all you people of God. I almost sound like Kumodi there. Come here, all you people of God. <laughs> come here. He says, he says, sing praise to Yahweh. You his godly ones and give thanks to his holy name. You see, when I can praise God privately, it doesn't take nothing for me to praise him publicly. If they got to tell you and coax you to praise God publicly, it's because you don't have a personal, private, pub, private worship with God. You see, your, your private worship influences and impacts your public worship. David says, come all you people. God healed me, and I want you to sing with me. And, and now, now, the text here says, praise him for his holy name. Literally, that says, the memorial of his holiness. Now, some scholars, I'm not one, says that it is the Ark of the Covenant, possibly, because the Ark of the Covenant was the visible symbol of God's holiness and presence with his people. So David could be saying, here's the Ark. Remember the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. He's still here. He's faithful. Praise him. It's good enough for me. Or 
is David saying, in light of this context, remember how holy God is. What does it mean to be holy, to be separate, to be so unique that you are a different creature altogether? And you can't even call God a creature because creature is something that was created. And so David is saying here, I need you to praise him for who and what he is. Praise him even if you didn't hear that he healed me. Praise him for who he is, yes, because he healed me, but his healing is a showing of the fact that he's so unique because if you hurt me, I ain't healing you. That's human speaking. But if you offend God, the same God you offended is the same God you go to for the healing from the offense. Help me, Lord. Interesting enough, David called these people godly ones term here is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed comes from the word um, having to do, it's usually interpreted or translated in, in, in the Hebrew Bible as loyal love or steadfast love. It's the equivalent of the, Hebrew, of the Greek agape, that, that sort of pure, holy, unmitigated, undiminished love, a covenantal love. He calls the people of God who are prone to be unfaithful, loyal lovers of God. That's a problem because you know that no human in and of himself can ever conjure up this type of love. This love is not genuine when it comes from human because this love fails in comparison to the love of God, the covenantal love of God. Here's the funny thing about covenants. You would hear people say, you know, a covenant is just like a contract. There's a problem. A contract is like a covenant, but a covenant is not like a contract. You see, covenants are only broken by death. Nowadays in our culture, we break contracts left and right and don't even care. We might pay a fee here, a fee there. Some of us even walk away from contracts, don't even care. When your life depends on it, you will meet the obligation of that contract. God shows us what a covenant really is. Now, a covenant in and of itself is already unimaginable for us as human beings to get into. The closest thing you have is your, your relationship with your wife. There should be no, no real reason to disconnect from each other because God is a covenantal lover of people. Here's why I say that. If the marriage should be a symbol or an example of God's love for the church, has God ever divorced the church? Amen. Not even getting into all the other issues that may come up in there, but are we even able to have covenantal love. God speaks to Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Watch this. Remember, a covenant is two parties coming together to say, I will offer this, and you will offer this, and if it breaks, we break. We die. Amen? You with me? Here's a covenant with God. God says to Abraham, sleep. God cuts an animal in half. Only God walks through the animal. Because in a covenant, both walk through to say, if I break this covenant as we split this animal, so will we be split. God says, my covenant is dependent only on me. That's an amen moment. You know why? Because if my relationship with God was dependent only on me, we would have no relationship. I have broken his covenant too many times for me to know the faithfulness of God. That if all, if its covenant with me was dependent on Daniel, that covenant was done 10 years ago. 
Covenant was done this morning when I woke up a little late. <laughs> Covenant was done when I was falling asleep while I was reading and trying to dig into the text. Because I'm unfaithful by nature as a human being. So David says, you covenantal lovers of God, come and sing with me. Now, I just told you, humans are incapable of this covenant. What David is saying here, these are people who love God because God first loved them. That his faithfulness influenced them so much that even though they're inconsistent in their faithfulness, they return back home. And he says, as I've returned back home, I need you to understand what God has done for me. Join me as we praise this holy and faithful covenantal God. I think that's what the text is saying. That God is a lover of his people, especially when they don't deserve it. David moves on and begins to express emotions for us and he says here in verse 5 he says his anger is but for a moment now when you see anger here don't think of human anger which is often flawed and unjust human anger is unjustified most times when it expresses itself because it's selfish and self-centered when you think of God's anger you think of God's righteous response to our sin when God in his holiness meets unholiness anger happens there's some things in our world that also make us angry it ought to make us angry that people were born as Bob and become Bobina. Some things ought to make us angry, not from a perspective of self-righteousness, but from a perspective of you're not living according to the will of God. When relationships don't go well, when churches break apart, that should make us angry. But our angry is unjust most of the times. So we better rest in the truth of God's word to inform our anger. When you see anger here, God is saying, David is saying that I'm, God was displeased with me. Now, for the unbeliever, God's anger is punitive. It's meant to punish evil. For the believer, it's redemptive. It's meant to pull you out of the clutches of sin. Regardless of where you find yourself, as an unbeliever or believer, it ain't fun to be in God's anger. David felt that. And David's response was what? Weeping. The right, correct Holy response to God's anger is to weep and to mourn over your sin, not to make light of it. I know what it is to make light of God's anger, and I know what it is to weep over God's anger. David says his anger, but he clarifies this. Look at what he says here. His anger is but for a moment. Amen. In comparison to the favor of God that lasts a lifetime, the anger of God is momentary. Here's what David is saying. The word here for lifetime, hayim, is in the plural sense. What David is saying is that his anger is but for a moment, a split second, if you will. But his favor is for lives upon lives. In other words, even when you were weeping, you were still experiencing God's favor. You ain't believe it. You didn't know it because it's that favor that said, uh-uh, it's enough. Stop weeping. Here's joy. See, God's anger is undergirded by his favor. Nothing happens to you that hasn't first gone through God's hands. Know that. Believe that. Stand on that when you weep because you know that even if you're weeping for discipline, God's favor is still on you because I don't discipline kids who are not mine. And because you're being disciplined, you his kid. Weeping endures for the night. Weeping is the correct response. 
Here's the interesting thing about the word weep, or the last, or endure there. It's the same word we use when someone comes over to visit, coming over for dinner. Can you imagine that weeping is coming over for dinner? Here's what, here's what David is saying. Weeping might come to lodge in your house, but that building belongs to God. And God's favor is the landlord ready to evict any unwanted guests at the right time. He's a good landlord. He will evict weeping at the right time. He will sit there, allow it to lodge, because in this lodging, it's grooming you. It's grooming me. And when it's over, God gives him a pink slip. Your job is done. Leave my child alone. And that's a good reminder. God's favor is ever with us, even when weeping comes to lodge for the night. And it's a long night sometimes. Some of us have been in that night for a long, long time. It's nights, plural for many of us. But please know that weeping only has a temporary pass. He will not last. Return to God, and he will return to you. And you will come home, and you will have good morning. Good morning. And David says here, and in verse 6, David starts to give us a glimpse into the, the particularity of his sin. David says, in the time of prosperity, first of all, what he says is, now as for me, I said in my prosperity that I will never be moved. Somebody didn't tell David, never say never. I will never be moved. That's an arrogant statement. Next verse, he says that, he says, but in your favor, you kept me. Now, he understood that. But David declared to himself, I'm such a much. I'm all that in a bag of chips. Nobody's going to move me. I'm the best in the world. I'm, of course, the king of Israel. I'm God's anointed. I will never be moved. Now, some scholars say that David here is speaking of a time in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 where he numbered God's people. He numbered the kingdom of God. In other words, showing that he had more, more belief and more trust in himself. There's no proof in the text to show me that, so I won't go there. Whatever reason David gives, he at least points to one time in life, a season of life even, where he trusted in himself and not in God. Where he put confidence in man and not in God. Where he trusts the size and the strength of his army rather than God himself. The God who gave him the army. Ain't that funny how we use the things God give us to sin against God? Okay. This is unfortunately a reoccurring theme through the scriptures. Both secular and godly kings do this all the time. Two kings that come to mind, Hezekiah and, 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 and Nebuchadnezzar. Look at me, if you will. And you, you don't have to go there, but, but look here. In 2 Chronicles ch chapter 32, the Bible says, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. In other words, like David unto death, almost. And he prayed, amen, to the Lord. Amen, good, looking good already. The Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Watch this, but whenever you see but in your Bible, you should pause. It's usually what we call a deconnective particle. It means that it is telling you that what's about to happen totally negates what just happened. In other words, Hezekiah started off on a good trajectory. He was in pain. He came to God. Good. Look what happens next. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Because what? His heart was proud. Therefore, the wrath of God came on him, not just there, on Judah, not just there, and on all of Jerusalem. 
a whole nation of people suffered because you didn't respect God. I wonder how many people suffer when we disobey God in our lives. It's a long strand. It's not just you. You are disobeying God, which means you're not strategically where you ought to be for the kingdom. How many people suffer for that? That God is sovereign, right? And so he makes all things work to, to his glory. But you see this king who God healed from death. And in order, instead of him to respect and respond like David, his heart becomes proud. God owed me that. After all, I'm the king of Israel. If I die, the kingdom dies. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. This is a longer read. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. The king reflected and said, pause there for a second. Tell your neighbor, if your, ref your reflections on, are more about you and less about God, there's a problem about to happen. If you spend time reflecting on how good you are without bringing God in the picture, there's a problem about to happen. Something is about to go wrong when your optics are only focused on you and not on God. He says, he starts reflecting, he starts having a conversation with himself. Is this not Babylon the great which I myself built as a royal residence for my might, by my power, for my glory? If you want to ever do like a sort of where's Waldo, look how many times Nebuchadnezzar uses the word I. I did this. I did that. And we don't talk like that, but internally in our hearts sometimes when we say we did something, we really want to say I did something. His arrogance is showing up in how he looks at the kingdom that God gave him, and he says, I did this for the glory of my majesty. Look at how many, look at how many adjectives he puts in there to describe his majesty. The glory of my majesty, for the benefit of my majesty, for the royalty of my residence. Verse 31 says, while he was still talking, while the word was still in his mouth, God's word came, and God always gets the final say, amen? And God says here, a voice came from heaven, the Bible says, and declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be among the beasts. And God goes further on and tells you that everything that you have put your faith in, I will demolish it. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. If you're stuck on your position, your possessions or your titles, or the next big major gig, you will fail. And that failure itself is God's providence and God's favor in your life. If he doesn't love you, he will let you succeed without him. Later on, Nebuchadnezzar says, but at the end of the period, look at verse 34, it says, I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. And I praise and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is in an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom endures for generations to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing he does according to his will. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar says, I will give thanks forever. God has to humble those people to get to that point. People don't get there naturally. We see the heart of the ungodly here that puts his trust in himself. No one gets to a place where they believe God is worthy of thanks except they be humbled. Look at what Calvin says here. Calvin says, by this we are taught to be on guard when in prosperity, that Satan may not bewitch us with his flatteries. 
The more bountifully God deals with someone, the more carefully they ought to watch against such snares. God is blessing you. It's not a time to remove all cares. It's a time to be actually more careful. I don't know anybody that is really a Christian that is distant from God in sorrow. But I know many are Christians who when God blesses them, they can't come to God anymore. God is no longer a priority. But when you were suffering, he was. I often wonder if God doesn't purposely, actually I know this to be true, put suffering in our lives to show us how much we need him. Because a good God gives you discipline. A bad God will give you everything you want. No good parent gives their child every single thing they want. David knows in an intimate way the anger and wrath of God. But even more so, David knows the undeserved mercy of God. And he reminds us that we ought to put confidence in God and not in man. Look at verse 7. David says, O Lord my God, your favor has made my mountain to stand strong. David says, after all has been considered, when God moved his face from me, I finally realized it was that God that I disconnected from that kept me. If you, it's a, this confession, and I want to be clear when I say this, this confession can only come if God crushes you. It does not come when you think you bring something to the table. It doesn't come when you say, God, I got two, you got four, let's make six. It only comes when you say like that old hymn, nothing in my hand do I bring, but simply to your cross do I cling. It's a mercy of God to have crushed David and not let him die in his pride. David confesses this. David confesses that it pleased God to build him up and it pleased God to break him down. It's like, it's like Job, right? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is worthy of praise when he gives. He's worthy of praise when he takes. If you think that he's worthy less of praise than any one of those, then you don't know God. Because you think your happiness or that his happiness is dependent on your happiness. Not so. David's humiliation was God's favor. God hiding his face from David was God's mercy. And when, it, when you hide your face from someone, it means to ignore or reject someone. Either or is possible, but I think both are here in the text. The David experienced the disconnection from God. It's interesting that all of the woes that David experienced, you know, the death, the near death, the, the, the disease, uh, the depression, the dumbness, the desertion, all of that is because God did one thing and one thing alone. He removed his presence. Think for a second. Even though you may even in life, I don't know where you are, think that God is not in your life, you understand that his presence is what keeps you breathing. You understand that when we decide to not obey God, that very breath that we decide to not obey God with belongs to God. What happens if God removes his presence from his people? They die. They die a thousand deaths. They die spiritually. That's what happens in the garden. God kicked them out of his presence. That's what God is doing to his people. He's reminding them that his presence is the most important thing. If you look through all the scripture, this was the joy of all the saints. They all wanted to be in the presence of God. 
Moses says, Peni al Peni, let me be face to face with God. How much more for the Christian who God has done so much? He saved you from the penalty of sin. You will not spend eternity in hell. Amen. He's saving you now from the presence and power of sin. Is he not worthy of your praise? Is he not worthy of our adoration? Do we not buckle at the fact that almighty, sovereign Yahweh dug down to pull us up? David knows the joy of being in God's presence. In light of David's self-sufficiency, God removed his presence from him. But in light of his supplication, God returned to him. Here's what I like. I like, I like this a lot. Look at Calvin again. Calvin says this. A marvelous and incredible method, surely, that God, by hiding his face, and as it were bringing on darkness, should open the eyes of his servant who saw nothing in the broad light of prosperity. If I could paraphrase that, let me say it this way. What you could not see in the light of your prosperity, you see crystal clear in the darkness of your misery. What God could not shout at you when you were prospering, he only whispers in your misery and you are hearing him clearly. God humbles David. Additionally, this passage shows us that David is a true believer because as Spurgeon puts it, no removing of the presence of God from a sinner will ever trouble him. Only a saint will be troubled by the removal of God's presence. Let me, let me, let me say it this way. Being a Christian does not mean you will never experience distance from God. What it means is that you are sensitive to it, and when that distance happens, you return back home. If you ain't returning back home, and you feel the distance of God, you might not be his. And that can take some time. Took me three and a half years. It could take a week. That weeping may endure for a long night. I know what it is to disgrace God. Sitting here preaching to you is God's favor on me. I take it not lightly that for someone who has spoken ill of God to be in a place where he can speak good of the same God, my weeping has endured for a night. I pray is over, but even if it still continues, I know that God's favor is still there. The Christian goes through this disconnect with God. That's normal. But God's favor is there through the vicissitudes of life, through the ebbs and flows of life. God is constant. He is constantly faithful while we are consistently faithless. And that ought to result in thanksgiving. Verse 10, verse 8 through 10, David says, To you, O Lord, I call, and to you I made my supplication. David recalls his cries to the Lord and invites us into his mind. He said he pled, he begged, and he pleaded with the Lord to deliver him from the clutches of sin. Please understand that this request is not for a heart of brokenness, but from a heart of brokenness. What I mean by that is that David isn't saying, God, bless me, remove this, then I'll see if I can praise you. What David is saying, I see your goodness even now. Please keep me alive that I may have the opportunity to tell others of your faithfulness. Is that a Christian life? That I'm a beggar who found bread and I'm showing other beggars how to find bread? Isn't that what we are as believers? Isn't that the, the only thing you need for evangelism? That God did a wondrous thing in your life and now you go and proclaim the glories of the one who brought you from darkness and into his marvelous light? David is preaching the gospel here. David is saying, 
that God took me from darkness, darkness that I brought on myself, washed me, and all I'm asking, Lord, is give me the opportunity and I will show your grace. He says this in Psalm 51. He says that open my lips and my tongue will show forth your grace, that sinners will be converted unto you, that sinners will see your goodness, that they will apprehend who you are because of what you've done in my life. Not that you owe me anything, Lord. God's discipline of David led to David's humble supplication. Here again, Calvin. No one can give himself cheerfully to prayer until he has been softened by the cross and totally subdued by it. Oh, man. And Calvin says this is the chief advantage of affliction, that while they make us sensible to our wretchedness, they stimulate us to supplicate God's favor. That's what afflictions do. They scream to you that you're far away from home. They scream to you to come back home. Danger, danger, Will Robinson, come back home. They tell you that you are too close to the well, Timmy. You're about to fall in. Or you are already in there and God pulls you out of the pit. Interesting enough, in verse 1, that word lift me out is the term that we use to pull water out of the well. David says, I was in a well. God dug up, brought me out. I supplicated to him in the midst of it because I knew he was good, even though he rejected me, rightfully so. Even though he deserted me, rightfully so. That was my experience. That was not his heart. His favor was always there. His favor is what caused me to come to my senses. What does David supplicate? David asks the Lord for a few things. He says, restore my soul. Second, he begs God for hearing. Look, at, look in, verse, in, 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 in verse 10. He says, hear me, O Lord. I am amazed about how many unbelievers who think, who have no relationship with God, who think God owes them an audience. I know many of people who have no relationship with God who says God owes me an audience. What's even more amazing is the Christian who God says, come and talk to me, you have my audience, has to be convinced about the importance of prayer. We got an extreme over there. They feel like they can talk to God whenever they want. We saved over here. We don't even want to use that privilege. That's the hardest thing for us to do, to come to the Lord in prayer. Yet he says, come, I will hear you. David, David responds rightly. David asks God, please give me an audience with you. I don't deserve it, but please let me, let me have an audience with you. David also begs for grace. David knew he didn't deserve it, but he begs for it. Fourthly, if you look in verse 10, David says, I need you to be my helper. This term helper is really misunderstood in our day and time. Helper to us is sometimes a glorified personal assistant, a personal genie, will you, that you rub the right way and gives you what you want. When you think of God as helper, think less Santa's little helper. Think more Ebenezer, rock of help. David says, I need empowerment. To live a life that is worthy of you. Ain't that something? It takes God to be able to obey God. It takes God to be able to obey God. And it also takes God, God's help, to know that you need God's help. Try to do it on your own. If you fail, it's his favor. If you succeed, you might not be his. But when you fail, it's not a time to dust yourself off over again. A saint falls seven times, Daniel. He raises him. 
that's, not, that's the time to go home in weeping and sorrow and ask God for grace and for help. That he would empower you to live a life that is worthy of his gospel. David asks for empowerment. David said, you turn my mourning into joy, into dancing. His anger and his discipline withdrawn, the weeping done, the dark night is over, joy has come. The imagery here is beautiful. If you look in the text, it says here, you loosed my sackcloth and then you girded me with gladness. God took the sackcloth that was already loose because it overwhelms you in grief and tightens your belt with goodness. In other words, unlike the loosey-goosiness of the weeping, although it's enduring for a night, and the morning, although it's enduring for a night, I tightened you with my favor and my goodness that even in the midst of your morning, my favor is holding you up. That's a good imagery. That God is constant in his faithfulness, even though we are inconsistent in our faithlessness. We are inconsistent with God. And that ought to result in praise. David says, my soul may sing to you and not be silent. Hey, go, that's dumbness again, that David was, was broken, couldn't speak. Interesting thing, your Bible may say, my glory. The text here says, my, my, my translation here says, my soul. The word soul there is the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod is usually when we talk about the glory of God. In this basic sense, kavod means weightiness, heaviness, influence, and impact. The point that God is making here through David is that all that is glorious ought to praise God. Interesting enough, the text supplies my. I don't think that's correct. I'll tell you why. Because if my is supplied, it limits the glory to David. Right? It says that my glory, all that is good in me, will praise you. Well, that's good. But if you remove that and you read it as the text is, let all that is praiseworthy praise God. You know the picture I get in Revelations where all the kings of the earth come and they put their crown before the Lord? David is saying if you have any influence, any goodness in and of yourself in this world, any influence, any impact that you have, all of that ought to be used to praise God. That's the difference. Not just me. That's all I have. But God is worthy beyond my praise. My praise ought to, his praise ought to go beyond me. And I ought to live in a life that people see me and not just say, man, God is praiseworthy, but join me in the effort of praising God. Let all that is glorious, all that is good, all that is heavy, all that is weighty, let it put its weight under the glory of God. David says, let my soul praise you. If you open my lips, I will do so. God answered David. God answers his supplication despite his sin. This is why David can say in verse 12, and we're closing soon, in verse 12, that my soul may sing of your praise, my, that, that you, that to you, and that I may not be silent. And, and in the end of the verse, he says, oh, my God. I, I, I always find it interesting when that personal pronoun is used for God. It means that I don't need anyone to inform me on the character of God. I have a personal relationship with God. Oh, Yahweh, out there, my God, in here. The Lord is far, but yet near. If you focus too much on the greatness of God and forget the nearness of God, you'll only be a drone. 
If you focus on the nearness of God and forget the greatness of God, Jesus becomes your buddy. But when those things are held in balance, when the greatness of God informs the nearness of God, and the nearness of God informs the greatness of God, then you are a subdued servant of God. You're humble. You walk different. You talk different. People know because you know the great God, but for his grace, is near you. And that near God, but for his grace, is beyond you. The greatness of God. David says, I will give thanks to you forever. An apprehension of God's grace will always result in thanksgiving. Only a person who understands that he or she is entitled to nothing and owes, is owed nothing from God can truly praise him. Only a humble heart can praise God. God's answer to David is also an answer to us. Because of God's grace and mercy in David's life, we have the psalm to remind us of the importance of God's faithfulness, that God is faithful throughout all generations, that the God that started way back with Adam is still the God that is here now. It informs us. In particular, it reminds us that God is faithful despite our faithlessness. David knows God's goodness, and so do we. Yes, we do. You're sitting here. You can move a limb. It's God's goodness. You know, the, the Yoruba people have a saying. When a rich man sees a poor man, he gives God thanks. When a poor man sees a, a man who is mentally challenged, he gives God thanks. When a mentally challenged man sees a dead man, he says, I still have hope. I give God glory. Whatever state you're in, whatever place you find yourself, God is worthy of our thanks. It's not difficult when you can apprehend God's faithfulness to give thanks. This text teaches us that the recognition of God's constant faithfulness to us, despite our consistent faithlessness to him, ought to result in our continuous praise. God is faithful, and he is worthy of our thanks, so we will give him thanks forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that despite and even in the face of our faithlessness, you remain faithful. Your word says that you are faithful because you can't deny yourself. Faithfulness is part of your DNA, if I weigh. Faithfulness is who you are. You are faithful beyond our imagination. And it's your faithfulness, God, that calls us even to you now, that we will surrender all our pride, all our plans, all our purposes, unpersonal. And if there's any here, God, who still thinks that they are faithful, that they are proud, that they are strong in their own, that I'll come to God when I get full and ready, or even the saint who in their mind is going beyond God's parameters and trying to do things on their own, well, I pray that you would remind them that only a humble heart can praise you. And you would humble them even where they are. You will humble us where we are. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your favor that we may truly understand that you are faithful despite our faithlessness. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your truth. I pray that it would bless us, keep us, that we would remember even in the dire circumstances of life that God is faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.